Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Nell Painter. She's the author of Old and Art School, a memoir of starting over, which is out this week from Counterpoint Press. In fact, it was released on Juneteenth. The starting over of the title refers to Painter's retirement after an elite career as an Ivy League historian to return to college as a 60-something student, first to take undergraduate studio art courses at Rutgers, then to pursue an MFA at the Rhode Island School of Design. Painter's memoir details her interactions with students and faculty and how she tried to think through how to make art after having spent decades teaching and writing history. It's a corking read, probably especially if you're in the administration at RISD. Before going to art school, Painter became one of America's most distinguished historians. She is the Edwards Professor of American History Emerita at Princeton University. Her books include Standing at Armageddon, Sojourner Truth, A Life, A Symbol, and the New York Times bestseller, The History of White People. She's also the past president of both the Organization of American Historians and the Southern Historical Association. Amazon is offering Olden Art School for just $15 in both Kindle and hardcover. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, we'll hear an excerpt from my 2017 conversation with artist Mark Ruedel. He's included in an exhibition at the Denver Art Museum that opens this weekend, New Territory Landscape Photography Today. But first, Nell Painter, after a break. Botus Isaac Kengelez, City Dreams at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. This complete retrospective of vibrant, ambitious sculptures of imagined cities, made of found objects like soda cans and bottle caps, all meticulously arranged, reflect the dreams the artist had for his home city of Kinshasa, rarely shown works that are a call for us all to imagine, in the artist's words, a better, more peaceful world. Get more info at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. This summer, visit the Guggenheim Museum in New York to see Giacometti, called Majestic by the New Yorker. Featuring nearly 200 sculptures, paintings, and drawings, the exhibition takes a close look at the art-making process of the Swiss artist Alberto Giacometti, known for his distinctive sculptures of the human form. Experience the show through September 12th, including on Tuesday nights when the museum is open until 9 p.m. Tickets at guggenheim.org slash Giacometti. Now through August 12th, The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Inherent Structure, a fascinating glimpse into the underlying sources and influence on abstract painting today, featuring 16 artists, including Richard Aldrich, Kevin Beasley, Sam Gilliam, Arturo Herrera, Angel Otero, Laura Owens, and Ruth Root. Brought together by Michael Goodson, Senior Curator of Exhibitions at the Wex, the multi-generational group challenges historical associations with chance, gesture, and aesthetic purity revealing the personal, material, and sociopolitical concerns at play in their practices through more than 60 captivating artworks. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Nell Painter, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. The obvious place to begin is to ask why you wanted to go to art school, but I think that before we get near that question... I need to introduce what was going on when you were making that decision and as you started school. You were finishing a book titled The History of White People that was published in 2010. It was and is a a very major book, the kind of book that is reviewed on the front page of major book reviews, the kind of book that was reviewed in the New York Review of Books by Edmund Morgan, a very major historian, and it may have been indeed the last thing he wrote before his death. As you were making the art school decision, you were about to ascend to the presidency of the Organization of American Historians, and in the midst of all of these crowningest of crowning achievements, 
you decided to step away from it all and go to art school. Why? The short answer is because I could. (laughs) I've been a very fortunate person in my life, and I'm a very grateful person. And I was at a place, I didn't understand exactly where I was, so part of it was ignorance. I was at a place where I could take another step, a sidestep. And my mother had showed me that it's possible to reinvent yourself when you leave your old life and move into something else. Now they call it an encore, an encore career. So that the short answer is I could. My husband was taking care of me. My parents, I thought, wrongly, were stabilized. My book, I thought, wrongly, was pretty much done. I didn't understand how much time and anguish and a billion emails and conference calls would go into the presidency of the Organization of American Historians. I was also president of the Southern Historical Association, which was a much easier job. It kind of runs the way it always has. So because I could and because I didn't know how much was lying in wait. To pick up two things from that, your husband is Glenn Schaefer. He's a professor at the business school at Rutgers. So I think you meant he was taking care of you financially and professionally and all that. Yes, and emotionally. Not Very yeah. Yeah. yeah, not not in a health-oriented way, as was really the case with your parents. He's in good health. Yeah. You mentioned your mother. At age 65, she became a first-time author. Did you and she talk about that back when she was deciding to do that? We did. I don't remember what we said, but I was very close to both my parents. And my mother always been a very good writer. I spent a good bit of my time in my youth away from home. So she wrote me these wonderful letters, which are at Duke in my archive. And uh, in her job, which she got kind of late, but which she enjoyed, she wrote reports. And she also worked as a research assistant for me at one point when I needed some some research assistance from the University of California Berkeley Library. So it was a kind of natural thing for her to do, but it was hard because it was new. And it was also hard because my father, who was a man of his generation, born in 1919, thought of his wife, my mother, as his wife. And so he always felt kind of in competition with her writing, which was hard for her. But she did it. She did it. Her first book was African-American history, you could say. It's called The Unsung Heart of Black America, which was not her title. It was the title her publishers gave her. And it was about the nice middle-class black people who were our friends, whom she felt were ignored in American society. So that in that one, she wrote as a black woman about black people. You know, it was rep- representing a larger phenomenon. The second one, after the 10 years research writing and publishing the first one, the second one was a memoir. And she wrote it as herself. She wrote it as an individual. This is really hard to do when you're a black American woman, because everybody wants you to, first of all, tell us about what it's like to be a black person in America, tell us about racism in America. Again, you're supposed to represent a larger phenomenon, 
and she wrote it as herself. So in a sense, I don't think we ever talked about that specifically, but that example, I think, helped me out of history and into art where I do make art as myself, as an individual. You can't let her second book pass without mentioning the title, which is great. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, The title is I Hope I Look That Good When I'm That Old, which is what people told her all the time. And now people say it to me. But I think that that, that title also gave me an encouragement to to kind of wink at the reader and say something that's kind of forbidden in a way for a woman, an older woman, an older black woman, to embrace looking good. Yeah, it's an all-time great title. And it's an all-time great cover because it's colorful. It's a, it's a kind of a, a deep lavender. It just kind of jumps at you. So before you could be interested in going to art school, you had to be interested in visual culture and art and its place, its import, its relevance. And a few times in the book, you mention, or more like hint maybe, that part of the research and writing process for the history of white people and, and also in your other books got you thinking about art, got some images into your books images that got you thinking about visual art as historically important as objects with cultural value. Probably the two books where that was most where that most happened in your professional practice were The History of White People and your book about Sojourner Truth. Could you walk us through how that happened? So, I always had this sort of little visual bean in my brain. I had been an art major for a while at Berkeley. And this is as an undergrad earlier in your life. As an undergrad, long, long, long time ago. And then from like the early 80s, I was a knitter. So I'm still a knitter. I'm learning how to make socks now. But, you know, the wealth of what comes through your eyes for me as a knitter was always there. But for Sojourner Truth, I turned to the image because words were failing me. So it wasn't a step into the visual for the visual sake. It was a step into the visual faute de mieux because Sojourner Truth didn't read and write, and I, I had to find some means of getting to her. To her personhood, to her, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm hesitating because, you know, you're always mediated, even as I'm talking to you, and then this is going out into the world. There's the you are mediating it, and there's editing and so forth. So there are always all these steps. You can't be directly, you don't have, I don't have direct access to a person's hood, yours or Sojourner Truth. The closest I could get was something that she made, her own self-fashioning through photographs. So photographs, of course, are visual. Luckily, at Princeton, I had the wonderful Marconde Art History Library, so I just went over there and immersed myself in the history of photography, and I found it absolutely fascinating. I loved it. I loved learning about images, looking at images, maybe uh, criticizing in the sense of art criticism is too strong a word, but just knowing, uh, finding another way of knowing. 
So that was the first step. And then I didn't finish the history of white people as planned, and so it, it dragged into art school. And art school got into the history of white people. So it's a very visual book. I had long been interested in the the concept of beauty. And to go back to my mother, if you can see in your mind's eye, or maybe you even have the image from my book, the co- her cover, you can see that she's a dark-skinned woman. And that makes a tremendous difference in American culture. So... So much of racism is about skin color. Not all of it, obviously. There's a whole lot more going on, which has to do with class and and gender and so on. But she's a dark-skinned woman, and as a dark-skinned woman, even though absolutely stunning woman, a stunning young woman, she grew up as not a beauty. So my mother could only become publicly beautiful after Black is Beautiful in the 60s and 70s. So in a sense, the title of her book is situated in history as a post-1970s book. I hope I look that good. And people being able to say to her, she looks good, even though she has dark skin, or she looks good in her dark skin. So the whole question of beauty had, had been intriguing me since gosh, the end of the 20th century. And I floated around a book proposal that got turned down. But, you know, the interest stayed with me. So the question of beauty went from my mother and the failed book proposal into the history of white people in which I was able to see how important beauty was for the scientists who were talking about race. So, History of White People, also, one chapter starts with Winkelmann, who's kind of a father of art history, and his aesthetic of hard white bodies. So, there's just a lot going on in History of White People that has to do with visual culture. And I don't know how many reviewers picked up on that. That's been a while ago. But I know it's important for me, and I actually bootlegged four of my own drawings into that book on page 26. Which is also in Olden Art School. And, and of course, art and artists were absolutely part of that 60s, 70s, Black is Beautiful movement. Think Barclay Hendricks, for example, and, and still are. Carrie James Marshall still makes paintings that address beauties present and past. You know, I forgot, I forgot something in in Monon. I was talking about <laughs> about getting into images, and that was a book that I wrote called "Creating Black Americans," in which the images are black fine art. So I gave myself a kind of, it was just a partial education in black art history because I was only dealing with with black fine art that related to history. But I learned about a lot of art I had not known about and a lot of artists I had never heard of until I worked on that book. And I took that knowledge into art school. So we'll get in a moment to the art school decisions, why why Rutgers, why RISD and all that. But while we're in this historian slash artist overlapping space, 
given that you have now trained as both an historian and as an artist and that you've been making work for for a decade have your ideas about how historians should and might consider visual material as historical documents changed profoundly the first thing is that i no longer no longer feel you can write history adequately if you don't deal with the visual especially 20th century history and going forward now we're well into the 21st century so i suppose some historians are dealing with the early 21st century. So that that root into knowledge, that root into understanding, into what makes an event or what what makes the historical representation of figures, the visual must be part of that. So yes, very important and more and more important and more and more important as the visual becomes more salient in how we know what's going on in our world. So I see, for instance, that the New York Times, which we read every day, in two ways, we read the the paper paper, but we also read online, is using videos much more than it had before, recognizing that how people, quote-unquote, read has to do with they're seeing moving images, or what passes for a moving image. So how we read is changing as we speak. But I will also add that when I was artist and, and scholar-in-residence at Yale in 2012, which was right after I finished at, at the Rhode Island School of Design, people asked me a very similar question, only it was about how I think about history. I could not answer the question. I I kind of said, duh. <laughs> I really couldn't answer the question. I got asked twice, and I said, duh, twice. <laughs> and and then I would say, well, I don't think about history anymore, which is totally stupid. <laughs> no, I'm, but you see, I wrote this book after uh, 2012, after duh. And the writing of it helped me see how I was still thinking about history. And so the way that I think the difference came through for me, and here I'm not speaking of historians in general or the historical profession, was an interest that had roots earlier on, even in biography, was a fascination with the peculiar in the sense, well, I should say the particular, even if it's peculiar, the particular, even if it does not represent a larger phenomenon. So, for instance, my first biography was Hosea Hudson, black communist in the Deep South, and then there was uh, Sojourner Truth. So when I wrote those, I think I still wrote those with the sense, as a historian, of making broader claims, of the broader import, the broader historical import of these two individuals. But after art school, and as it kind of trickled down into my consciousness, I began to embrace the peculiar or the particular or the individual or subjectivities, even if I couldn't 
answer the questions I had just because they were interesting. And that's, that's the way artists work. It's also the way writers work, especially fiction writers, that they can focus on a person or a phenomenon just because it's fascinating. So that's how finally I recognized what the visual was doing to my thinking about history. As much as I enjoy cruising along at 30,000 feet, especially because we're talking about issues that I work through every day in my professional life, we should get you into Rutgers and get you into art school. So why, why Rutgers and why painting? Rutgers. My husband is a Rutgers professor, so we've been attached to Rutgers for quite a while. Rutgers is a very good institution. Oh, the first thing is that Princeton doesn't have a degree program. You taught at Princeton. We should mention you taught at Princeton. Yeah, I taught at Princeton. I started painting at Princeton. And then I took the drawing and painting marathon at the studio school. So that's why painting. At first, I thought I could do it at Rutgers Newark, because we live in Newark. But I spoke to Denise Tomasos, the late, much-missed Denise Tomasos, about going to, to Rutgers Newark because that was close and easy, and it's part of Rutgers, and they have, they have a fine art uh, program. She said, no, you need a larger program. She said, Mason Gross uh, at New Brunswick. And I talked to several other people. Mason Gross has a really wonderful reputation, as it should. Can I, can I jump in really quickly? Rutgers University, the main campus is in New Brunswick, which is in central New Jersey, south of Newark. That's right. Thank you but easily a train right away. So I applied to Mason Gross at Rutgers, and I got in. I was tremendously proud. I thought it was really hard to do. I learned later that it's maybe not that hard to do. And uh, I really enjoyed my time there, and I should have stayed longer. But for a whole lot of reasons, I made a bad decision to go to graduate school after three years of undergraduate school. And I wrote a chapter on this called A Bad Decision, which had to do with my mother's death and my getting old and just all these things that shouldn't have weighed in. So I applied to several graduate schools, and the one I really, really wanted to go to was Yale. And I have, I have an honorary doctorate from Yale. <laughs> I mean, it's not as if I have no relationship with Yale. And they turned me down flat. That really hurt. And my second choice was the Rhode Island School of Design, also a school with a reputation for intensity and hard work. That's what I wanted, intensity and hard work. So I was just delighted when they accepted me. And I went there, and my first few weeks were just the Elysian Fields. I loved it. Yeah. The, I think the real guts of the book, and, and probably my favorite part of the book, is your account of your MFA experience at RISD. As someone who myself works in art, but who comes from far outside the art world, my, you know, my background is and was journalism, one of the loudest themes of the book for me was how nearly everyone on the art side of the book seemed, and especially at RISD, seemed to lack any respect for your outside of art knowledge and experience and expertise and achievement. Did you feel like the art people at RISD, whether they be students or faculty or administrators, 
were suspicious of you because you had accomplished things outside of art and because you had atypical interests from a you know 27-year-old MFA student? <laughs> well, where you just ended that sentence was probably the salient. That was the big deal, that I was not 27 years old. I should say that when I say old in art school, you can be old in art school if you're over 30. So, you know, and I was way over 30. So that was the big thing. I was just wrong in terms of my age. Other people have said, well, you know, maybe they didn't know what to do with you, or maybe you made them insecure. I did not feel that. I just felt that my former life just didn't have anything to do or certainly didn't have anything to do in a helpful way with my art education. And sometimes being academic was a bad thing. And sometimes I railed against it. One time I actually made a painting that had footnotes and I had to take the footnotes off, but I am going to make a painting with footnotes again. I am going to do it because now I am free. But mostly it was like there was this other life I had, and it just didn't have anything to do with our graduate school. But I should say, you know, I my experience was at the Rhode Island School of Design. But everybody else I have talked to who has done an MFA, whether in visual art or fiction writing or poetry, they recognize what I encountered. They recognize the lack of standards. They recognize faculty who were not interested. They recognize this sense that your own gender or race experience was uninteresting or useless or even off-putting. So it, I just happened to be at RISD, but the, the, my, generaliz- my generalizations apply to art graduate school. One of the themes of the book or one of the recurring scenes, that's a bad word, in the book, is you detailing how your training and background and experience of teaching history got you into trouble when it came to to becoming an artist. And one of my favorite examples is the one you just cited, when you write that you were used to scrupulously citing your sources, which is something, of course, that artists hardly ever do. <laughs> <laughs> so how how did you get comfortable after decades of, of, you know, Chicago Manual of Style footnoting with shifting from one way of working and thinking to another? I never got comfortable. I negotiated every time I approach appropriation in the sense of of using somebody else's image. I just tried to do it, but I never felt comfortable with it. And last year I got a lesson in why that remains the case and should remain the case. I was artist-in-residence at the Brodsky Center, which is a wonderful printmaking center at Mason Grove School of the Arts. And I made a piece. The outside was scanned images of my knitting. So the frame of the piece was knitting, but scanned, not the actual knitting. And then the 
the ground of the image was a photograph I had taken on my walk, on my morning walk, looking back at Newark. And then there was repeated figure, which, which I had taken, and I tried to make it my own, of Serena Williams playing tennis, a very a fascinating pose. So the director liked this piece very much, and I liked it, but we didn't edition it because she looked at it, and she wasn't sure it was far enough from the photograph. So I tracked down where the photograph or the rights were getting, and we got in touch with Getty. We sent, sent them my image and in my piece, and Getty came back and said, every time you show this, you owe us $14,000. The piece has not been additioned. So now I'm thinking, well, maybe I should photograph myself in the pose. And then instead of calling it Serena's over Newark, I can call it faux Serena's over Newark. <laughs> but that, that has yet to be done. Uh, the Brodsky Center is in transit from Mason Gross to Philadelphia. And when they get set up again, we'll, we'll revisit that piece and maybe addition it. There are a lot of places in the book where you express frustration with the methods of both undergraduate and graduate studio art education. And, and there is a laugh out loud part of the book where uh, when you're at RISD and working on your MFA, when you go to a student curated show and note that it has more curators, 19, than works of art. <laughs> yes. So the kids could get away with all this stuff, and I couldn't get away with diddly squat. I mean, it seems so unfair. <laughs> so so from these two very different experiences, as, as obviously you were a student at, at, at Harvard once, and then, and then you taught, and then you're back in school in two different schools doing different things, so what do you find to be the relative strengths and weaknesses of how studio art was, was taught at Rutgers and at RISD? Well, first of all, let me say that a, a Ph.D. in history at Harvard was a piece of cake compared to an MFA at the Rhode Island School of Design. And I should also say that when I was a professor, I taught at a teaching institution, that is Princeton University, where teaching was taken very seriously, and the students work hard. So that was really different from undergraduate and graduate art school. But I think the hardest difference for me was that when I was in history, I had a sense of what I needed to do and how to do it. And I kind of had that sense in undergraduate school, but I didn't have that sense very much in graduate school. I always felt off balance. There was, I guess there's one thing you, you did particularly like about the non-Princeton model, if you will. You found open stacks, libraries with open stacks to be useful, and it kind of functions as a metaphor in the book in a way. Yes. I should say that at Princeton, the Firestone Library has open stacks, so I could go in Firestone Library and look around. But Marcom, the art school library, I could go into the stacks and I could look around, but I could not take books out. 
And that is also the case in the Art History Library at Rutgers. But at RISD, I could borrow the art books, and that was that was heaven. One of the most interesting parts of the book, maybe it's obvious because I kind of keep asking about the, this, this intersection, is places where you're deciding how much your professional experience can inform your student and then studio experiences. At the end of the book, not to give anything away, you you move toward making works of and and to using digital collage to make work. Did that medium and that mashup of medium help make it possible for you to embrace a mashup of backgrounds and experiences in your work? The answer that leaps into my throat says yes. And certainly the digital helped break down my concern for coherence. But there's still the question of subject matter, which I think carries over from history and which I still uh, embrace. I do make non-representational, non-figurative, abstract work, and I like working that way. I think partly my audience prefers figurative work, and so maybe I kind of go that way because people want to see it. So, hmm, I'm, I'm floundering around here because I think the answer is yes, but I'm not quite sure how. One of the, the other things that you wrestle with throughout the book is the question of illustration and whether you are leaning, whether your work is leaning in that direction. There is a long and deep and influential tradition of both illustrators and illustration in American art, from Winslow Homer to Edward Hopper to, as you note in the book, Andy Warhol. What about an illustrator did you want to not be? And what part of the illustration into fine art tradition did you decide was okay? What I didn't want to be was someone who made images that you couldn't spend time with, images that went down too quickly, images that were too didactic, images that were not satisfying visually because they were too much message. That I didn't want to do. And I still, how I judge whether I've succeeded or not with a work or with a series is can, can viewers spend a good bit of time with this image? Is it visually rewarding? So I think I see that as now the line between what is illustration and what is fine art. But since I'm, I continue to be drawn to work that has subject matter, you could say, oh, yeah, well, that's the illustration side. Well, if so, so be it. At the end of your RISD experience, and, and maybe a better way to answer this is, is, is to go beyond the book and, and, and to bring it up to the present, do you think you found elements of illustration that, were important to you and worth embracing? And, and maybe before you answer, you know, you, you note in, in, your, in the book that one of your favorite artists is Robert Colescott. And, and I'm a big Colescott fan. I mean, talk about funny. But he's, he's an artist who I, I think thought about the things we're talking about. I only met him once in Paris. 
And he and, and his partner came to visit. This would have been in the mid-90s. So that was before I went to art school and before I thought much. And I think I probably didn't even know who he was. So I couldn't have a conversation with him that I would love to have now if I could pull him out of the grave. Because obviously he had thought about and made work expressing those thoughts and those images that, that would reward me. I mean, have rewarded me. And we're also both from Oakland. <laughs> so. But he found a way to make at least references to illustration work in his art, in part because he could he could poke fun at it and, and make sly, ironic jokes about it. Do you, as you work now, feel like you've, you've made peace with maybe it being in your work a little bit? Yes, in the sense that no longer do I hear the voices of my teachers. So I had my hand slapped a lot, either about illustration or about text or about historical subject matter when I was in school. And, you know, I, I got past that. Part of getting past that was realizing that I am too old to have the kind of career that I might have had if I had succeeded somehow in getting past illustration. Now I just make the art I want to make, and if it's illustration, okay. I mean, I think that's where someone like Edward Hopper got. His figures still look like, I mean, illustrations dropped into the middle of color and light studies. Right, and in the sense that you can see what's going on, there's a narrative. Maybe narrative also is one of the words that should be in the conversation here, because I think illustration and narrative can go very close together. And, and, and Colescott does lots of narrative. Yeah. Yeah, he was very interested in history. I really, I really like his compositions. And when I say composition, I mean in the way he puts parts of his paintings together. You, know, you mentioned earlier, and of course the title of the book is Old in Art School, that you thought that most of the response you garnered from students in the system, as it were, was because of your age. I mean, the book also talks a lot about how race and outsiderhood play play a role in your art school's experiences. How did you think through whether the response you were getting was because of age or because of race or because of gender or because of outsiderhood? Well, as I say, you know, I don't, I don't want to pretend that I could disentangle all that. It's, it's all part of me. But I could look around, and I could look around in New York and New Jersey, and I could see artists who were black but who were young, artists who were female who were young, and see that they were different from me, who was black and female, but old. So that was part of it. I could see artists who had gone through the, the process I was going through, who had the race and the gender or the race and the gender, but whose experience was different. I also realized, and I speak about this, that I had the handicap of 20th century eyes. And that was a major handicap of, of not being comfortable with do-it-yourself aesthetics. I always had to try to talk myself into loosening up. And that was not a problem with my younger peers. 
Yeah, that those are really interesting parts of 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 the book. I think people my age can particularly relate to those parts of the book. One of the uh, other things that pops into the book over and over again is your relationship with RISD. You a number of times describe it as a particular space by white people for wealthy people and and often for wealthy white people. And and then, of course, I, I don't want to give away kind of a key part of the book, but but there is a moment near the end of the book where where RISD takes a pretty pointed shot at you and you take and, and, and you in the book take a pretty pointed shot at them in response. How much how much of of your thoughts on RISD and print are memoir writing and how much of them are criticisms you hope that get discussed at their next board meeting? <laughs> Have you talked to their board? No, no, no. I actually know the head of the RISD board, and he does want me to talk to the board. So he has said. But I did not write this thinking, I need to talk to the RISD board. I need to tell the RISD board a thing or two. No. And I need to stress again that my discussion of art school, of graduate art school, extends far beyond RISD into art education generally. So it's not just RISD, RISD just happened to be my place. So it, there's a generalization there that I hope other places might also look at. And I, I should add, too, that art schools are generally overwhelmingly, graduate art schools are generally overwhelmingly white. And because art school is so expensive, uh, people of a certain level financially. I fit into that level financially, and I, but as a black American, I think that makes it harder for me, for many other people to see me, because I'm not a poor black American. I'm not an innocent black American in the sense of coming to the educational institution bereft of my own, not social currency, but intellectual currency. So I came knowing a lot, and I came with enough money to do it myself. So I made a piece, actually, which flopped, which was about my embarrassment, actually, at being a non-poor black American, called Embarrassment of Riches. And I think my cohort couldn't wrap their heads around a black American who was embarrassed because she was relatively rich. You know, there's just too much going on in there. I mean, I'm not a really rich person, but I'm not a poor person. Yeah, even an educational institution wanted a simplified narrative rather than a complicated narrative. If they wanted that narrative at all. And other people talking about their experiences in MFA programs, particularly writing programs, have spoken of being discouraged from talking about what's on their mind. Finally, where, where are you now? What are you making now? Does any of what you're making now kind of, would we recognize its origins in the book? Uh, yes. Where I am now, I'm actually talking to you from the Adirondacks, where I'm taking a deep breath before a very intensive book promotion starts. 
And I am not able to make very much art because book promotion and book production have taken up so much of my time and my inner, my mental energy. I, I am not able to do both writing book stuff and art hand stuff at the same intensity. So my writing machine, my book machine, has to get going and get warmed up before it really works, and that takes some time. And my art-making machine also needs to get going and get revved up and make some art before it really makes art worth looking at. And that second machine has been kind of idle for quite a while because the first machine has been taking up all the diesel fuel. So I have managed this year, and we are halfway through this year, I have only made three, four small pieces which were commissioned to go with a play. And Three Whole Press has published this play with these four little largely digital collages, you know, some handwork, but mostly done on the computer. And that's about it. So it's very frustrating to be talking about myself as an artist. And then people say, well, what are you working on now? Is that working on my, my book promotion is what I'm working on. It's the, you know, the store of time is finite. And I look forward to getting back to making art, but I know that between book promotion and its travel, I will not really be able to make art seriously, satisfyingly, until 2019. Making is work. Making is work, but you, you, know, you asked earlier about the relationship between my former life and my life as a painter. And one thing that just came across my email was that the history of white people has just been translated into French. Hooray! And it's going to be published in November, and will I come to Paris? Well, of course. But the block of time that that will take to go to Paris and celebrate the publication of the French edition of the History of White People, I am not going to make any art in November. Nell Painter, thanks so much. Oh, well, thank you, Tyler. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Those were hard questions. The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Salmon Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view at the Pulitzer through August 11th, Mona Hatoum, Terra Infirma, is the artist's first major solo exhibition in the United States in 20 years and comprises more than 30 sculptures and installations. Merging the languages of minimalism and surrealism filtered through a feminist lens, Hatoum subverts the familiar to offer nuanced perspectives on universal human questions. 
The exhibition has been organized by the Menil Collection Houston and is on view at the Pulitzer in St. Louis through August 11, 2018. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Opening June 26th at the Getty, Icons of Style, A Century of Fashion Photography, 1911-2011, to a major exhibition surveying the rich and varied history of modern fashion photography. Drawn from the museum's permanent collection and supplemented by loans from private and public sources, Icons of Style features more than 160 photographs presented alongside costumes, illustrations, magazine covers, videos, and advertisements. Learn more about this and other upcoming shows at getty.edu. Slash 360. Welcome back. Next up, an excerpt from my 2017 conversation with Mark Ruedel. The Los Angeles-based Ruedel is one of those artists whose work seems to perpetually be on view somewhere, but never here at home. Right now, the Tate Modern is showing an extensive selection of Ruedel's work through December 3rd, an installation that was curated by Sarah Allen and Simon Baker. The Ruedels in London include work for most parts of his career, including his famed railway cuts and his pictures from hell, pictures of Western features named for the devil or his underworld home. Also, this weekend, the Denver Art Museum opens New Territory Landscape Photography Today. It's a broad survey of global landscape photography curated by Eric Paddock. That shows on view through September 16th. Mark Ruedel, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Great to be back. Let's start with Pictures of Hell, the title of the 2014 book slash project from which pictures are now on view in, in New York. Was thinking about hell as a naming construct a dedicated project you imagined from a beginning point in the mid-1990s, or did it just reveal itself as you spent time out in the West? I think it more, more, more the latter. I started noticing those names. I'll just give you one example. There's, there's a Hell's Gate in the northern end of Death Valley, and I'd, I, I was interested in photographing from that point for a completely different project. So, And in my notes, I would, you know, right hell's gate for example and and i started and of course i'm reading maps for these projects in particular westward the course of empire the the railroad uh, abandoned railroad line project and so i started noticing hell here devil there and and it gradually you know just became this like what would happen if i pursued that you know and but i had no idea how many how much real estate the devil actually has (laughs) you know so like some other things I've gotten myself involved in, I could have spent the rest of my working life doing this. You know, I mean, there was just so much finally. At first, when I, when I start something like that, I think, oh, how can I f- possibly continue? How am I going to figure this out? And then at a certain point, it's like, how can I stop? <laughs> so, I mean, as I, as I started working on this as a project rather than just sort of random pictures that ended up in the files, I started like making certain limitations and, and focusing on, say, uh, in particular, the, the Devil's Gate. Now, because, partly because, uh, well, for a, f- a few reasons. One was, of course, there were these very significant 19th century photographs made in Devil's Gates, but also a lot of the, the ge- geologically, a lot of them actually looked like railroad cuts. They were very similar forms, so there, I was interested in that kind of echo formal echo between bodies of work and i just really liked the idea of you know the gates of hell <laughs> you know so i tried 
to to get as to as many devils and hell's gates as possible and and then along the way i picked up like devil's ball diamonds and things like that <laughs> and i at some point i decided that it would be a western project as as i started a friend of mine actually established a database for me on place names this would have been in the 90s before i you know the internet was commonly in, in, in households like mine but uh, he he worked for a state agency and uh, we figured this out and then i realized there was way too many so i you know i thought okay it's going to be the mostly the territory that i was already working in for other projects uh, and i did several Hell and Devil landscapes in Nova Scotia when I taught there one summer, I think in the year 2000. But finally, I had to put those aside because it didn't make sense in the project as a whole. So what got the idea from being an enjoyment of nomenclature or or, or a series of, of chuckles at nomenclature to being something that made sense pictorially? Well, I don't, in a, in a funny way, they don't make sense pictorially because, you know, you you look at, and I guess I was really interested in that sort of sometimes harmonious relationship between the image, uh, between the place and the name. That's more often than not a perplexing one. And, and, and I think, you know, in retrospect, I think back on this, there's some echo of that of that interest in in the earlier nuclear landscapes and the Hanford work, and wherein you know it has incredibly beautiful Western landscape, and then you know the title, the, the name of the place, throws it into a really different relief. They have this marvelous view of the Columbia River, and then you know the the textual information informs the viewer that in fact this is the site of the b reactor and this water was used to cool the reactor and the b reactor made the plutonium that destroyed nagasaki so i was you know there's a kind of rupture there so maybe the origin of my interest in place names in relationship to the images i'm making goes goes back to that work in the earlier 90s and you know i started thinking about like you know why these places are named hell this or devil that or you know some really odd things like hell out for noon city you know i mean it's just and i think you know there's several sort of theoretical reasons as to why you know why these things were named what they're named and they vary from you know they can range from the kind of you know whimsical say national park guy to to a, a sort of semi-overtly racist attitude towards the previous peoples that lived in those same places or used those same places. Just to give listeners an idea, there are, for example, about 30-ish pictures of formations called Devil's Gate. So a number of the phrases recur, and as the viewer pages through the book, for example, there are characteristics of places with such a name that maybe don't quite become consistent, but become, you know, familiar or relevant or understandable. There's, there's, there's a language that begins, there's a visual, you know, a relationship between a place and a visual and the language kind of begin to cohere. It's almost like a concordance of the West in a way. A lot, of course, a lot of them are uh, are landscapes formed by volcanic activity. So there's some sort of obvious uh, projection that this is like literally hell popping up through the surface of the earth. You know, that's most obvious in the Devil's Garden pictures, which are often formations of basalt. Yeah, 
the book itself is actually arranged by the names of the places rather than any other kind of narrative structure, you know. And then, so, you know, all the Devil's Gardens are together, et cetera, et cetera. But then uh, they're sort of subdivided, so there's a, there's a section where they're sort of like uh, body parts, like, you know, the devil's elbow, the devil's head, and, and, and the devil's nose and stuff like that. It's a book where the pictures are are awesome in the sense that some of the things are, are just really awe Fill, fill the viewer with awe, but also there are just parts that one can't help but kind of chuckle and go, yeah, yeah, that's about right. Okay. Well, <laughs> there's one called The Devil's Mace, and you, and you look at it, and, it, and it's literally a picture of nothing, you know, it's just like horizon and, you know, and sky, you know, dirt and sky, basically, the quintessential reductive landscape photograph. <laughs> so speaking of that kind of really reductive landscape, after you won the Scotiabank Photography Prize in 2014, you did an interview with the National Gallery of Canada's magazine in which you talked about how much you love a kind of minimal aesthetic and finding it in a landscape. And you referenced a Canadian survey photographer whose name you couldn't remember at the time, but who I think was probably Humphrey Lloyd Heim. Yes, that's Miami, correct. Yes. Who, who for me is one of the really interesting and almost completely unknown, even in Canada, 19th century North American landscape photographers. What about that minimal aesthetic in a landscape with certainly plenty of topographical drama interests you? I think I'm sort of hardwired to, to see things that way. Uh, you know, I, I, went, I studied art in the mid-70s. You know, I was a painter making, you know, geometric abstractions. And This is when you were a student. Still. Yeah, so I'm not a, I wasn't a painter. I was a painting student. <laughs> Make that uh, that clear but I, I just yeah I, I don't really know how to ex explain that I, I just I seem to uh, just gravitate towards that the Heim picture that I was referring or that you're bringing up I remember actually laughing out loud seeing that because of the title you know it was like I'm not sure if this is exact but it was like the prairie looking west and it was nothing but you know a horizon line, you know, it's just, it would seem kind of amusing. And, and I remember actually first seeing that in a conference at, somewhere in Eastern Canada when I was a graduate student and half the audience laughing out loud when whoever was talking about this showed this slide and said, the prairie looking east, <laughs> or, or maybe it was looking west, but it, it was literally just a line. And, you know, my interest in other art and, you know, the sort of post-minimalist stuff and, what was once known as epistemological abstraction and that it just sort of dovetailed with that seeing, you know, and I think sometimes the hardest thing for me to sort of articulate is, you know, why I photograph something a certain way. I, I, I because I, it's not like I feel like I have a, a plan to do things a certain way. It's just, that they just sort of work out. And I, and, you know, if we can, think about the westward pictures for a second you know at some point like photographing those those rock cuts that the railroads were responsible for it just became clear to me that i should photograph them all pretty much the same way you know so the so you know minimalism compounded because <laughs> i was really interested in the relationships between pictures as well you know so i'd always i you know simple things i use the same uh, type of lens the camera was always that the same height, you know, which was my eye level height. And just to kind of, so that the differences would actually, to do it the same made the differences more acute. 
Yeah, you don't even have to squint to find the Ellsworth Kelly in the in the Westward pictures, the pictures of rail cuts. Well, let's talk about three specific pictures of yours that lock into this minimal aesthetic. And I should we'll have we'll have images of them all on manpodcast.com. And we'll have that Humphrey Lloyd Heim picture, which I totally love on manpodcast.com as well. So the three pictures are Devil Lake, a picture you made in uh, the Fremont National Forest, Devil's Garden, which you made in Bly, and Devil's Golf Course, a Death Valley picture. And all three of them have varying degrees of the minimal aesthetic we were talking about. Did you think of all three in that way? And and how did you decide? You could have made these pictures in a number of different ways. You could have put the horizon line in different places or and I don't mean this as a negative criticism, you could have just not made them at all. You could have just decided there wasn't something there you wanted to deal with. Um, so I guess kind of why all three? Okay, so I'm going to start with the last part of the question. The project, became, the, the kind of conceptual armature of the project was that I, I would go to this place because of what it was called, and then I would just try to make a picture there. So I... I can only think of one exception in, say, maybe 150, 170 different uh, occurrences that I decided I couldn't make a picture <laughs> for this project. Because I think the idea, there was a, you know, regardless of how, you know, similar the results may look, uh, for me, there was a kind of aspect of improvisation because I, I hadn't picked the, photo, the, the site for its visual appeal because in most cases, I didn't even know what it looked like, you know. So I, so I would get there, okay. You know, the, the three you picked, uh, for the most part, there's nothing there. So, there, you know, it's like, how do you photograph nothing? <laughs> That's a kind of interesting problem for a picture maker. So I was interested in, in doing that. The the Devil Lake picture, of the three, you know, it's sort of the most picturesque because there is some sort of, you know, there's there's inc- a visual incident on the, on the horizon. It's not just a line. There's these, you know, there's two mountains. One is obviously further away because of the atmospheric perspective and there's also you know in the foreground there's these two rocks in the left corner that sort of mimic the two trees in the right middle ground so there's actually you know at first glance there's nothing but you know those are the kinds of things i thought about and like that's why i chose to stand right there rather than say 10 feet somewhere else you know so two rocks two trees and two mountains it just runs through and pulls the eye through the picture yeah and you know it's i mean this is these a lot of these pictures are made many years ago it's possible that i wasn't consciously thinking of all those things at the moment but i would have made a a few variant pictures and that's probably why i picked that one to print if nothing else the devil's golf course there is actually a lot of action there's this amazing sort of stuff in the foreground and that's has something to do with why the horizon is a bit higher than probably in the majority of my pictures because i was really interested in i was actually captivated by this weird sort of geological gorp stuff that's you know the that probably elicited the name to begin with the name of the place and then this amazing desert light which sort of makes the horizon line shimmer a little bit you know it's almost like the mountains in the background are they're not quite touching the horizon not 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 a little bit the shimmer is such that when i look at this picture in the book i can't hold my eyes still on the horizon it it just doesn't it just moves my eye just moves it 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 it, it really does that <laughs> and and i think that's you know and that, that's part of the, my my understanding of that kind of place and that kind of light you know so 
I don't remember if I made other variants in that picture or not. I might have just said, well, this is it, you know, <laughs> there's no need <laughs> to do it again, like over there, you know. And the Benson Death Valley, those were, unlike most of the other sites, those were places that I had already been to photographing for other purposes. So I was pretty sure of when I, when I was on the, the devil's work, doing the devil's work, that I knew exactly where to, what to do about the devil's golf course. But Devil Lake in Oregon, I was clueless because I'd never been there. And in fact, it's not much of a lake. <laughs> you know, so. One of the ways I, I worked on, I researched this project was to, to very carefully read every single page of all the DeLorme road atlases for the western states and then i would write in the margins and i found a, a devil's lake in a sort of just a bit north of seattle and you know so i went there and it turned out to be just this you know i mean it's a very lovely little lake completely surrounded by suburban houses and i stood there for a while and looked around and there was only one access point because of private property and i just said oh, I, I forget it you know i can't do it but that's the only one that comes to mind and then maybe that attitude towards these places is reflected in the structure of the book or, or, or the composition of the book anyway and because Simon Baker was of the Tate Modern who's the editor on this book his understanding of what I had done was that was that it was a kind of encyclopedia so he he really pushed the idea that the book should have all the pictures not sort of the best for whatever whatever using whatever criteria but all of them because he just thought it was not just amazing that there are all these places with these names, but that I was sort of foolish enough to go to all of them, you know. So for him, that was part of the meaning of what I had done. And to be honest, uh, now that it's over, I I hid about twenty or so pictures from him. <laughs> <laughs> so why? What are you going to do with them? <laughs> uh, well, I just thought, you know, I was starting to worry that the book was getting too big, and also there were some that. Uh, I just didn't think we're successful somehow, you know, or or maybe, yeah, I guess in a nutshell, and why they I felt that way, I'm, I no longer remember in some cases, but but uh, this idea that the meaning of the project was the kind of the totality of it was was really interesting, and I, I you know I probably knew that all along, but to have somebody else recognize that was really useful in terms of turning this you know giant box of pictures into a book. The third picture I mentioned was Devil's Garden, which you made in which you made in Bly. So this is a picture which reveals ever so slightly, or the ever so slight fall of the land. So it's it's in some ways the most Heimlike, but in other ways it's it's not. It's it's a picture you could have chosen not to make, but because you did choose to make. I mean, it's it's really an extraordinary picture. I mean, just the the texture, the light, the line where the horizon moves. Were any of those things the reason you decided to make that picture? I don't really remember thinking about that stuff. Again, this is, you know, more than a decade, maybe it's 15 years ago, but I do remember that that particular Devil's Garden, which was a very large garden. I had made other pictures, and I chose to use this one because of those minimalist qualities and the way it it sort of emphasized the the relationship, the kind of weird relationship I was interested in between the name and the, and what the place looked like. Some of the other pictures of that garden actually had, you know, twisted basalt formations and so on and so forth. But that one. I think I liked it because it didn't. It looked least like a devil's garden, <laughs> you know. 
and uh, especially you know you, in that in the book you turn the page and you get another devil's garden in another part of Oregon and you realize then that makes really clear what I'm talking about because that one has this you know big twisted hunk of basalt you know this, you know hardened lava stuff and uh, so you know that one sort of is a lot more I guess comprehensible in terms of this, of, of thinking about like why somebody would name it the devil's garden there are eight devil's gardens in the book one of them is a picture of uh, or made in garfield county utah and it is of kind of a big hunk of either sandstone or basalt or both and it, and it's weathered by wind at the top and probably by air at at the bottom you know kind of the the, the way basalt or sandstone or whatever it was cools um, it looks kind of tubular Again, we'll have an image on, on manpodcast.com. This is a picture that sure looks a heck of a lot like a Tony Craig sculpture or, or, or any one of another, you know, or, or maybe an early modern Central European sculpture. I mean, it, it has, you know, very, it's full of art historical references. I know that like me, you are a big Lewis Baltz fan and, and Baltz famously made, or maybe not famously enough, but certainly made photographs that were riffs on painting and, and very specific paintings um, and sculptures made by his his peers and contemporaries. Are you doing that here? No. <laughs> Short answer. Not that I've never done that in my work, but not here. And in fact, I, I, I'd I be hard-pressed to say that I even see the Tony Craig thing because he's not an artist that's sort of, you know, on the in, in, in high in my in my you know say list of favorites. You know, I don't nothing pro or con. I just he's not somebody that I think about. I actually thought what was interesting about this picture was the two rocks on the on the right that kind of looks like a half finished snowman. <laughs> with with the very oddly scaled tree. Between. Yeah, yeah. It was a really strange place. And I this one in terms of my process, I remember making lots of pictures there over a couple hours because. There was just so many possibilities. There was a, it was like a garden of these things, you know. Some of the other places were very sort of unique. There was really only one possibility here. And I guess finally I liked, this turned out to be maybe one of the, compositionally one of the simplest pictures I made, and I just really liked that. And there's obviously something anthropomorphic about that central rock formation, you know. There was, you know, it's it's a kind of, figurative presence in some way. And uh, that's probably what spoke to me finally in the editing process. Mark Ruedel, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a lot of fun. See you in hell. (laughs) That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.